Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Brian, and along with Jeff, we are the hosts of this program. Greetings and welcome to the Bible Questions podcast program. Uh, my name is Jeff, and along with me today, we've got our other regular co-host, Brian. Brian, how are you doing this morning? Doing really well, Jeff. I guess I could say I am blessed and grateful. Yeah, there you go. Count your blessings. <laughs> so today we have an interesting topic on one of the largest, if perhaps at this point not the largest, world religions. And it's not Christianity. Uh, as I said, it might be the largest, it might be close to being the largest, uh, and that would be Islam. Now, as soon as I say Islam, as soon as I say Muslims, uh, you know, that may easily trigger um, a lot of thoughts in our listeners' uh, minds. You know, certainly we have seen to some degree a uh, rise in violence that are sometimes connected to Islamic terrorists or radical, you know, Islamic extremists. Uh, certainly, if you look within the uh, region of the Middle East, uh, certainly has been uh, somewhat unsettled for uh, a long period of time. Uh, competition within the region, uh, fighting between, you know, various uh, sects, if you will, uh, various Muslim sects. You know, ISIS and Al Qaeda. I think we just got through uh, uh, observing our, I think it was the, tw yeah, the twentieth anniversary of attacks here in the United States uh, by, you know, radical Muslims on the, you know, World Trade Center and the Pentagon, etc. Uh, we've seen all kinds of political unrest with uh, Muslims immigrating into various countries like France and England. And, you know, we can back up a moment and say, you know, what's going on? You know, uh, one of the common factors uh, that tends to be associated with all these kind of headlines uh, would be Muslims, kind of, in general. Uh, but more specifically, uh, with the, the violence, as I said, um, and this is kind of a politically incorrect thing to say, but, you know, radical Muslim extremists or Islamic extremists, Islamic terrorists, etc., so one of the things we'd like to do, you know, Brian and I today, would like to probe a little bit deeper uh, about this religion called Islam, uh, and really try and understand uh, facts about Islam, and not necessarily, you know, our emotional response to various acts of terrorism. You know, facts about Islam, dig a little bit deeper into uh, the doctrines that are associated with Islam. Uh, and we would also very much like to focus on various assertions that Muslims often make about the Bible, Jesus, Christianity, you know, as well as uh, Muhammad. So, Brian, we, we've got a, a lot to go on today. Uh, I think this may wind up being a, a two-parter, so our audience, you know, shouldn't be surprised. Uh, Brian, anything else you want to add before we uh, dive into it? Uh, no, you're right. It'll be a two-part series, and there is much to cover. So, yeah, let's just dive right in. Okay. So, at least according to a Pew Research Center report, I think back around 20, 2009, 2010, give or take, uh, first of all, interesting that Islam is the fastest-growing religion you know, across the planet. 
uh, and is predicted to grow more quickly, uh, you know, percentage-wise, you know, over the next 30 years. Estimated change um, for Muslims uh, over the next uh, 50 years, give or take, or adherence to Islam, uh, 73% growth. Um, that's in contrast to the overall population growth of about 35%. Uh, with Christians and Hindus coming in, yeah, 35, you know, 34%, you know, give or take, and, and other uh, worldwide religions, you know, less than that. So a, a major population shift uh, is what is anticipated by that study, or population increase, if you will. Uh, if you look at the current population across the planet that is uh, adherence to uh, Islam, uh, most of them tend to be centered, you know, somewhat in northern Africa, uh, the Middle East, uh, parts of Southeast Asia, where the population in general, percent of the population that's uh, Muslim, uh, is over 90 percent. Um, we also see, you know, percent of population, you know, between 30 and 50 percent, more so in Central Africa and, and parts of Southern Africa. Uh, and then populations between maybe 10 and 15 percent. Uh, and growing in, for instance, North America, parts of South America, as well as Australia. So in terms of a number of adherents to uh, Islam, uh, as we said, certainly concentrated very, very, very uh, heavily in uh, Northern Africa, the Middle East, uh, Indonesia, but growing elsewhere uh, around the planet. So Brian, I think that kind of takes us to you know, some additional facts you know, a little bit more precise uh, than just simple, uh, you know, population uh, demographics. Uh, what do you got? Yeah, so let's talk about, you know, just some basic facts, as you mentioned, about Islam. And so when you look at this word Islam, it's an Arabic word that means submission to God or acceptance of God's guidance. As you kind of touched on, Jeff, there's a global following of around, oh, I think it's up really near about 2 billion people now. Uh, or about 25% now of the world's population, which kind of shows you how significant it is, right? The first Muslims were Arabs. And now, based on what Jeff just said about the different countries uh, where it's growing, it includes members of other ethnic groups. So if you were to look, though, today, the largest Muslim population is that of Indonesia, where there are approximately well, a little over 200 million adherents uh, which is a pretty big number, isn't it? Yeah. So Allah, which is the Arabic name for God and, and not the name of a special God of Islam, uh, I think it's something that's important to remember because oftentimes when people think of Allah, they're thinking, well, this is some false God. Now, what they claim their God supports uh, certainly is off if you compare it to what the Bible teaches. But Allah itself is just simply an Arabic name for God, not any kind of a special name. And when you look at Jews and Christians and Muslims who speak Arabic, they all refer to God as Allah. So it's something to keep in mind. They believe in monotheism, which is simply the belief in one God. And as we go through this, you'll be able to see that therefore they reject the Godhead, you know, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, Muhammad is viewed by Muslims as the last of God's messengers, what they call the seal of the prophets, because they believe that there were no others after him. Muslims celebrate two official religious holidays. There is the three-day holiday marking the end of Ramadan, uh, the Ramadan fast, and a four-day holiday 
which concludes the annual pilgrimage, which we'll talk more about here in a little bit. They typically meet on Fridays for prayers, readings, and preaching. And men and women are separated during worship. So just a few facts about Islam. Jeff? Yeah, Brian, before I go into, you know, my next section about, you know, facts about Islam, I did want to go back and correct something a little bit that I said, you know, at the beginning, where I kind of hesitated whether or not, you know, Islam was, you know, largest population on the planet or not. So while you were talking, I looked it up via Google, and it looks like the broad umbrella that we would call Christianity include, you know, Roman Catholics and Greek Orthodox and Protestants, etc. just the broad general term. Um, roughly 31% uh, of the planet adheres to that, or uh, 2.4 billion. Uh, Islam comes in, though, at a, at a close second, at 25%, as you indicated, about uh, 2 billion. So less than Christianity, broadly viewed. But if the trends I mentioned are at the beginning continue, you know, they could easily, you know, uh, overtake and surpass, uh, you know, quote-unquote uh, Christians on the planet. So I just wanted to uh, correct that before moving forward. Yeah, I appreciate that. It does show you it's a very significant number of people around the world that adhere to this religion. Oh, absolutely. Well, and especially with, you know, some of the uh, the percentage of the population numbers. Like, as as I said, you know, within some parts of the planet, you know, 90%, I mean, think about that, 90 or more than 90% of the population adhere to Islam. As we'll maybe talk a little bit later on, you know, that has a has a massive impact on the culture, you know, of the country, the laws of the country, uh, etc. So, just interesting facts. Yep. All right, so moving on. Uh, so, Muslims are taught to believe and practice what are sometimes called the five pillars of Islam, or basic foundations of Islam. Uh, and each of these is associated with typically a uh, Arabic name, which I will try to pronounce, but let me just apologize in advance to listeners who may know Arabic, which I do not, if I mispronounce uh, some of these terms. The first of the five is the Declaration of Faith, Shahada. Uh, by translation means the testimony, that belief there is no deity other than God, and that Muhammad is his messenger. And this is critical because it's essential for a person to utter this in order to become a Muslim and convert to Islam. Uh, the second is obligatory prayer, uh, shalah, uh, which is there five times a day, uh, daily prayers, at certain times with certain uh, rites associated with them. Uh, number three is compulsory giving, zakat, uh, translated that which purifies. It's an annual payment of a portion of one's wealth for charitable and communal use. Uh, number four is fasting. And of course, this is the daytime fast during the holy month of Ramadan, which typically is in like the April, uh, May, March, April, May, uh, springtime uh, part of the year. And there, number five is the Hajjah, uh, or Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca, which they view as one of their holy cities. Uh, that's during the last month of their uh, religious year. And if at all possible, every faithful uh, Muslim male, I think, tries to make that at least once in a lifetime, uh, if possible. And I think you may have seen, like, uh, you know, news coverage of them, you know, going into the city and circling this very large, cubic kind of looking uh, monolith. 
that would be part of their uh, pilgrimage. So uh, some additional facts about their quote-unquote five pillars. Brian? Yeah, and after Muhammad's death, there were really several disagreements over the choice of a new leader for the Muslim community that eventually resulted in the emergence of three main sects of Islam. So if you look at this, what you'll see is that the largest sect by far is Sunni or Sunite, which means traditional. And these would be Muslims who did not question the legitimacy of the caliphs or successors to Muhammad. So approximately 75 to 90 percent, somewhere within that range of all Muslims today, are Sunnis or Sunnis. Uh, the next major sect is Shia or Shiite, meaning partisan. Uh, and this originated as the Muslim party that believed the succession to Muhammad should be restricted to his first cousin and son-in-law Ali and his descendants after him. And they constitute somewhere between 10 and 20 percent of Islam. And then the third group, the third largest group, I guess you could say, are the Karajites, which means dissident. And uh, they're given this name because they dissented from both the Sunnis and Shiites by maintaining that the leaders should be elected and that any believing and capable Muslim was eligible for election. So, Jeff, kind of like we see with a lot of religions, certainly a lot of false religions, is they tend to splinter. You know, I was thinking, for instance, of the Baptist church and how, you know, early on it was just one denomination, if you will, but now... I mean, you have multiple splinter groups, if you will, because of disagreements in some aspect of what they believe. And so you have the Southern Baptist Convention. And I mean, you could just go look. It's just amazing at the number. Anyhow, we see it kind of occurred within this religion as well. Yeah, as you were talking, I was kind of curious about uh, you know, if there's some trends with uh, Sunnis and Shiites. Um, and I haven't found very much in, in the you know, few moments I started looking. But it appears that the uh, population of Iran, interestingly enough, is about 90% uh, Shi'i or Shiites. And of course, if you go back in your history, major civil wars or wars between various countries in the Middle East, like between Iran and Iraq, or even civil wars you know, within uh, Syria, etc. Some of that is, is directly tied to this uh, religious division or the various sects that they have. Uh, now, something I want to add here, just, just very quickly. When you look at, as you're saying, the broad umbrella that we would call Christianity, you know, we certainly have, you know, large number of denominations within Christianity, just like Islam has denominations. Okay. But also there's another cross-cutting classification that people might be able to observe. And that's between, and these are kind of loose terms, uh, liberals and conservatives or progressive and conservatives, or you may even see at both ends of that liberal conservative spectrum, what we might call extremists. Uh, now, even within Islam, now we certainly see that within Christianity, uh, but also within Islam, you, you kind of see that kind of um, spectrum, uh, if you will. And, and the kinds of things that they uh, divide over in terms of liberal versus conservative in some ways are very similar to Christianity. You know, for instance, uh, there's major divisions between, you know, liberals and conservatives, uh, if you will, over women's rights, 
um, homosexual rights or LGBTQ plus rights, uh, secularism. Uh, there's considerable division over waging holy war or jihad, which we'll talk more about, I think, in a little bit. Uh, certainly division over, you know, committing acts of terrorism. So the point I guess I'd like to make is you cannot assume that every single Muslim is a violent, radical extremist any more than you can assume that every quote-unquote Christian is, you know, some extremist, cross-burning member of the Ku Klux Klan, etc. You know, you can't make that assumption. And in all fairness, you know, what we want to do today, kind of in the next main section, is not necessarily focus on what Muslims do in terms of their acts uh, to include, admittedly, acts of terrorism, but on what their foundational religion teaches. You know, what, the, uh, what is the you know, basic foundation within uh, Islam, you know, what it teaches, what their holy books are, uh, what kind of uh, you know, foundational uh, doctrines. And then, once we kind of understand that, compare that or contrast that with what the Bible teaches, especially the, the New Testament. So, Brian, this kind of wraps up our you know, facts section of the podcast. Did you want to have anything else to add before we move into doctrine? Yeah, just one additional thought, and that is, you know, you were talking about, and I appreciate you bringing up the point that it's important for us not to paint everyone with a broad brush that, hey, all Muslims are X. Right. Or Islam is just this way as in violent. Uh, as we get into the doctrine, what we will see is that the reason why there are various beliefs about the level of violence or the philosophy of convert or die really centers around the doctrine. And the early years and early writings of Muhammad, which really preached peace and tolerance, if you will, Whereas his later writings, when Islam became a much more dominant group, kind of shifted to more towards violence and a convert or die mentality. So it's kind of interesting how within their own doctrine, you have both you know, teachings on both philosophies, if you will. And that is why there is often a division today uh, in what they believe in practice. But anyhow. All right. And I would, and, and I don't, again, don't want to, like you paint a, a broad brush, but I think in general you'd probably find that the you know progressives or the liberals probably you know focus more on the passages that deal with peace, and the conservatives and certainly the extremists would focus on no, the Quran says you know these passages convert or die, etc. And you know the extremists will take that quote unquote you know to the extreme and actually in. Uh, uh, go through acts of, uh, you know, terrorism, like we saw with 9-11, uh, as, as an example, uh, blowing themselves up, you know, in the name of Allah, etc. But I'm, I'm getting kind of ahead of myself. Uh, so we, as we go now into this next section, we want to kind of talk about the doctrine or the underlying uh, teaches, uh, teachings of Islam. So I think one of the, the, the very first things we need to establish, just as Christians in general have the Bible, you know, Old Testament, New Testament, uh, Muslims have what they call the Quran. Uh, followers believe that it contains the revelations written by Muhammad uh, as he was living in uh, Mecca and Medina, which are two major cities in what we now know as kind of Saudi Arabia. Uh, Muslims do believe that the uh, 
they do believe, if you will, in what is we call the Torah, uh, which you might recognize as the first five books of the Old Testament. They also accept the Psalms of David, uh, and they even will accept the teachings of Jesus uh, as having been revealed from God. Uh, they would also believe that the what we might call portions of the Old Testament as well as the New Testament uh, have been corrupted over time uh, by mankind. And that is why the Quran was needed. Uh, and not only needed, but they would also assert that the Quran is God's final revelation, uh, that it is complete, that it is uncorrupted, and it certainly should be the basis for our religious beliefs, uh, authoritative, you know, revelation today. A little bit of a fact here, the Quran is made up of what we would call chapters, uh, 114 of them, uh, called surahs, if I said that correctly, uh, of varying length, you know, similar to what we have within the Bible, various chapters, uh, that each composed is a number of ayahs, if I said that right, or verses. So they will quote like, you know, a book, uh, a chapter and a verse, you know, somewhat similar to the way we handle the Bible. Um, now, one thing that's we'll go into next, uh, which I think, Brian, you're going to do, is looking at the origin of the Quran, which, again, they view as their main primary religious text. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting as we get into the Quran and, and kind of look at how it's designed. You mentioned, Jeff, that they consider to be God's final complete an uncorrupted, you know, revelation. Yet, when you dive into it, it contains very little teaching. And not only that, but they have, as in the, the uh, religion of Islam in general, released more creeds because the Quran contains very little teaching. So, <clears throat> if you look at their guide, the, their creed, the Quran, it was written after the death of Muhammad, and it really contains, as I mentioned, very little teaching. And so if you dive into that and you actually read it, uh, what you'll notice is many repeated themes, uh, kind of a lack of cohesiveness. And, you know, that is compared in comparison to the Bible, right, where we're not saying there's not difficult passages or anything like that, but the Bible is very cohesive. It's very easy, for instance, to read a section of Scripture and to understand what's going on, what it's about, what's trying to be taught. Whereas when you look at the Quran, it, it just, it's not cohesive. Uh, there are numerous statements in there about there is only one God, there are many praises to God, and there are many condemnations of unbelievers. That's what makes up a majority of the Quran. Now, even those adherents within Islam recognize that there was a need for more instruction because the Quran just doesn't have that. And once again, if you think about that, this is supposed to be considered the final revelation from God, yet it contains very little teaching. That doesn't seem to make sense, right? So, as a result, they came up with an additional creed, which turns out to now be their law book, if you will, and it's called the Hadith. So they assembled the Hadith, and if you were to look into this, what you would see is that it contains sayings and actions of Muhammad. And once again, this was completed after his death, some 200 years after his death. Now, Muslims believe that the sayings within the Hadith were ordained by God. And once again, if you do a little bit of a deeper dive here, what you'll notice is that, you know, traditional sayings of Muhammad, 
sayings of uh, what they call sages, you know, Islamic sages, which are, you know, people that are supposed to be very wise. So by the ninth century, over 600,000 hadith had been recorded. And later on, this was edited down to about 25,000, which if you were to pick up one of these creeds today, that's what would be in it, about 25,000 hadith. And although it's not regarded as the spoken word of God like the Quran, Muslims believe the hadith is an important source of doctrine, law, and practice. So, you know, I would argue that, once again, they had no choice but to put something like this together because the Quran just does not contain a lot of law and teaching. Now, Sharia, or Sharia law, was also put together to provide legal and moral guidance for the Muslim community. And if you kind of look at how it was derived, it comes from the religious precepts of Islam, particularly as we were just talking about the Quran and the Hadith. So, known as Sunnah, it literally means a clear and well-trodden path. And if you were to dive into this creed, what you'll notice is that it kind of focuses, really addresses the ways of life uh, from person to person, such as how you deal with friends, how you deal with family and government. And it was really put together or compiled by Muslim scholars and is really the civil law in some Muslim communities, such as Saudi Arabia. Uh, there's also been efforts, I know, for instance, in Minnesota, where you know there's been a request. In fact, it's been granted to be able to implement Sharia alongside U.S. law, which is kind of interesting. Uh, their preference would be that they be ruled only by Sharia law and not U.S. law or any other country's laws that they live in. And so, you know, when they conquer, uh, certainly if you go back in time, you know, when countries were conquered, uh, oftentimes Sharia law was put into place. That was the standard. That became the standard. And so, um, you know, that along that line, you continue to see Muslims today uh, requesting within the countries where they live, if they are under that country's law, they often request to be governed by Sharia law. Right. And, you know, Brian, when you mentioned that, I was thinking, you know, within the last couple months, if you will, of this podcast, you know, the United States has, you know, finished its withdrawal from Afghanistan with uh, ISIS uh, and other forces, you know, kind of taking or uh, Taliban, Taliban taking over the country. And what we're seeing is an immediate reversion back to a lot of the uh, laws, which I'm assuming are based on the Sharia law that the the Taliban wants to enforce you know certain uh you know rights of women etc so as you said when uh, when muslims you know take over a country you know often there is a change to the you know civil government civil law uh, etc that that we've kind of experienced ourselves within the last uh at least within Afghanistan within the last few months and and are now actually as you said starting to see within the United States yeah, it's it's something that I guess it makes sense. I mean, if you understand how their philosophy where there is this melding or merger in civil law and religious law, uh, where their preference is to for them to be one and the same. Whereas within the United States, at least, there has always been a separation of church and state. And so I guess it's kind of the opposite of that, right? Right. Well, and, and we may make more observations about this later on. But it's interesting that the way Muslims approach the country and civil law in many ways is kind of parallel to Judaism under the Old Testament, where they had a theocracy, you know, where the laws of the nation 
were, you know, founded on, you know, religious laws, law of Moses. So there are interesting parallels there. Definitely is, yes. So now we kind of want to move beyond just facts about the Quran and the Hadith, etc., uh, and go into some actual claims or assertions that uh, Muslims will make. Uh, starting off, um, kinds of assertions they will make typically, again, not always, but typically, about the Bible, uh, about Jesus, about Muhammad, and in general about the, the religion of Islam. Now, as, as we kind of alluded to earlier, if you look at these kind of four areas, you know, they will say in summary, the Bible's been corrupted, it's inaccurate, uh, and often many religions, you know, will make that claim, uh, honestly, to include Mormonism, so that you will follow their doctrine, their teaching, you know, instead of the Bible. Uh, they will assert that, you know, as we've said, Muhammad is the last prophet of God. Uh, they will assert that uh, Jesus was a, a mighty prophet as well, but simply a prophet, simply a good man, that he certainly was not the Messiah, and definitely not the son of god not deity and of course this is in keeping with their monotheistic view but it's a little bit more than that brian you know when we talk about monotheism we often contrast that with polytheism uh hinduism you know as an example but when we say uh, uh islam is a monotheistic religion we have to recognize that they are strictly monotheists just in some ways like Jews, where Muslims would view Allah as a singular entity, uh, not a trinity of Father and Son and Holy Spirit, as taught typically in mainstream Christianity. And, you know, the fourth major, you know, claim that they'll make about, you know, Bible, Jesus, Muhammad, and Islam is that Islam is a religion of peace, which we'll also get into that. So, starting off, first assertion is about the Bible and it having been corrupted. So, they would assert that both Old and New Testaments, you know, have been changed, altered, corrupted, uh, inaccurate. And again, this is why God, allegedly, or Allah, allegedly, through Muhammad, you know, provided additional revelation, clarification. That's the purpose of the Quran. Now, we would come back and rebut that uh, with a rebuttal. Uh, that the integrity of the scriptures can be confirmed. Uh, and this kind of gets into the area of Christian evidences that, you know, the manuscript evidence, for example, uh, is extremely heavy. You know, number of manuscripts, uh, even fragmentary manuscripts, you know, available to us across time, at least from a New Testament perspective, the last 2,000 years. Uh, can indeed confirm the accuracy of what we have today going all the way back to when the first you know, manuscripts were discovered. Now, admittedly, there there is a little bit of a gap in time, but it's not a huge gap. I mean, I think the oldest manuscripts of the Old Testament, for example, uh, date back as far as roughly 400 B.C. And, of course, a lot of those were discovered uh, in the uh, Dead Sea region in 1948. Uh, roughly 300 rolls or scrolls, uh, manuscripts, uh, almost all the books of the Old Testament. I've got a quote here from Professor F.F. F. Bruce, who says, quote, the new evidence, and of course, this would be from the Dead Sea discovery uh, around 400 B.C., give or take. The new evidence, can, and I should also mention prior to that, I think the oldest manuscripts, Brian, we had of the Old Testament were, I 
think around 1000 AD, maybe 1100 AD. Anyway, so this pushed it way much further back. Uh, so again, back to the quote from uh, Professor Bruce. The new evidence confirms what we have already good reason to believe, that the Jewish scribes of the early Christian centuries copied and recopied the text of the Hebrew Bible with the utmost fidelity. Of course, that's from roughly 400 BC to what had been uh, roughly uh, 1,080 that we had manuscripts from previously. Uh, no major discrepancies uh, were discovered. You know, a few minor copying errors, certainly, uh, but no material change to the facts or the teaching. Of course, that's from an Old Testament perspective. Uh, as for the New Testament, we've got you know almost 5,000 manuscripts dating back to 300 A.D., uh, and likewise there, no major discrepancies have been found. You know, with subsequent manuscript discoveries, you know, certainly has uh, confirmed that. Uh, and, you know, the, the 300 AD I just might mention is, you know, complete manuscripts. You've got fragmentary manuscripts even earlier than that. you got the writings of what we sometimes call the church fathers prior to that, where they would often quote passages. Uh, and so very, very abundant manuscript evidence that it has not been as corrupted uh, as the Muslims would assert. Uh, in fact, uh, as I said, you know, some uh, religious groups like Mormons would assert, you know, New Testament's been corrupted. Uh, an interesting example comes from the Jehovah's Witnesses, where, for instance, you know, they came out with their, you know, New World Translation, which no one else recognizes because it is heavily biased toward their creed, their sect, etc., uh, and, you know, you could go into that and immediately notice, you know, things that have been changed, I would assert, corrupted. Uh, I think one of the most glaring ones, if I remember right, is John 1, 1, where it says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was a God. Whoa, wait, what? what? The word was a God? Oh, yeah, that means he was a mighty one. Not that he was deity. Of course, that's what the, you know, the witnesses would assert. Um, now, certainly, if you go out on the internet, you can find various assertions of Muslims that the Bible has been changed, has been corrupted. Uh, in fact, in my personal uh, collection, I've got a, a website where there's over a hundred accusations of alleged uh, contradictions within the Bible. But when you really dig into it, um, it's, it's much ado about nothing. Yeah, certainly some scribal errors were there that you can detect because we have so many manuscripts, so that's good. Um, one of the things that I think is fascinating is that when you go into the Quran uh, and you compare some of the overlapping teachings between the Quran or the history revealed in the Quran versus the history revealed in the Bible, there's some fascinating differences according to this in a real short list I've got here. For instance, uh, at least according to what I've got here, uh, Abraham offered Ishmael, not Isaac, um, as a um, as God requested or started to offer uh, Ishmael uh, as a quote unquote burnt offering according to the command of God, not Isaac. Uh, and of course, that's because they want to show, perhaps to some degree, uh, their lineage back through Ishmael as opposed to the Jews typical showing their lineage back through Isaac. Um, allegedly, the Holy Spirit, or what we would know as the Holy Spirit, was an angel, uh, Gabriel. Um, 
Also, interestingly, uh, during creation, uh, the angels were ordered to bow down to God's creation, a man. Allegedly, one refused to bow down and was cast out of heaven. Well, guess who that became from their perspective? Satan. So they will go in, in even more detail, uh, allegedly, and, and talk about the origin of Satan, which the, the Bible does not. So some interesting things or assertions, if you will, that they make about the Bible that, generally speaking, are, you know, claim to be um, corrupted, etc., which basically, as it turns out, is not true, and their alleged contradictions can be relatively easily countered or refuted, right? Yeah, you know, it's interesting how, much like other false religions, to justify their creeds, so you think about, for instance, like the Mormons and the fact that they have the Book of Mormon and the Pearl of Great Price, uh, many religions will assert that mankind has corrupted the Bible, and therefore that's why their creed is needed, right? So it's easy to justify additional revelations and creeds and so forth. And so, you know, I think you hit on a couple key points. One is that there are really no documented examples where they can show this alleged corruption. Uh, yeah, there might be alleged contradictions, which if you study, as you pointed out very closely, are not actual contradictions or corruptions. The other thing is, when it comes to the reliability of the scriptures, uh, as you touched on, there, are been, there have been many scholars. I mean, you could literally spend a week just researching all of the scholarly work that has been done to confirm the accuracy and efficacy, if you will, of the scriptures. And we actually, Jeff, you might remember back in episodes 54 and 55, we had a two-part podcast on the Bible where we went into more detail on the origin and the reliability of the Bible. Uh, so I'd encourage our listeners, if you have not heard those two, listen to that because we talk about, you know, as in part of the podcast at least, the work that these scholars have done, the painstaking work that they have done to show that what we have today in most of the major translations, so, you know, King James, New King James, American Standard, English Standard Version, and so on, that we can rely on to be accurate. And while there are translations, like I'm thinking also, Jeff, of the New World translation that you mentioned uh, with the Jehovah's Witnesses, yeah, there are definitely translations that have been changed to fit their false doctrine. Uh, but, you know, as long as you understand which translations are reliable, like some that I just mentioned, you can have be fully confident that it's the same as what was being used and read from scrolls many hundreds of years ago. Yep, good points. So, you know, we kind of kicked off this section with, you know, four main uh, assertions. Of course, the first one, what the Muslims will assert regarding the Bible. How about the second one regarding uh, Muhammad? Yeah, let's take a look at this one, and that, this will actually wrap up this first episode of our podcast, and then uh, in the next episode, we'll get into a few more assertions and, and move on from there. But in this particular assertion, you know, there is this belief that Muhammad was the last prophet of God. And as we touched on early on, as a result, Muslims believe he was the quote-unquote seal of the prophets, because they will say that there were no others after him. Now, like any claim that any religion makes, we need to put it to the test, right? So, you know, the Bible teaches us this principle in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1, where it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. 
And so, you know, the Bible, one thing I love about the Bible, whether it's the old law, you know, Old Testament, new law, New Testament, is that there are many instructions from God regarding ensuring or testing anything that we're taught to make sure it's consistent with his will. So, you know, that's just really, uh, you know, one of the Bible basics, if you will, about belief and following anything. We have to always compare it to God's word. So as First John 4, 1 said, you know, just accept somebody's word, you put it to the test. And that test, of course, is comparing it to God's standard. God, through Moses, told man something similar, where there are instructions from God about how to find out if a prophet was from him. So, Jeff, you want to read uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 21 and 22 for us? Okay. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So here, you know, we think about somebody, a prophet, of course, is supposed to be a spokesman from God. And, you know, there are many false prophets. There were then, there are now. And so prophets, of course, will predict or make statements about the future. And as it says here, you know, if what they say doesn't happen, well, then obviously they're a false prophet. And, you know, when you look at Muhammad, first off, Muhammad claimed himself that Jesus said he would be a prophet. And so if we go into their doctrine, the Quran, and you look at Surah chapter 61 and verse 6, it says, And remember when Jesus, son of Miriam, which is Mary, said, O children of Israel, I am the messenger of Allah unto you confirming the Torah, or the Torah, which came before me in giving glad tidings of a messenger to come after me, whose name shall be Ahmed. But when he, Ahmed, and they're referring to Muhammad, came to them with clear proofs, they said, this is plain magic. So you would ask yourself, okay, well, this is in the Quran. Is it in the Bible. Well, they would say, yes, it's in the Bible in John chapter 6, verses 26 and 27. So they refer to the seal that's mentioned here as proof that this is referring to Muhammad and Jesus's prophecy about Muhammad coming in the future. So if you're familiar with this section of scripture in John chapter 6, this is the day after Jesus fed the multitudes. And we read in verse 26, Jesus answered in answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. Now, the seal mentioned here is clearly talking about Jesus, if you look at the context of what's being said. His works, his miracles, confirmed he was from God. So, therefore, Jesus was God's seal or proof that he was from God. So, you know, this is not a prophecy about a future prophet. I don't know, Jeff, how anybody could stretch this into saying this is a prophecy about Muhammad. Uh, it, just, it just doesn't make sense, right? Yeah, you, you have to come with that preconceived notion to try to, to uh, find that. 
Exactly. And, you know, if you really look at the history of Muhammad, what you'll see is that he really declared himself a prophet and his followers took his word for it. So, you know, this is something that, that we have seen once again in a lot of different religions. You look at Joseph Smith, you look at, you know, Mary Baker, Eddie, you know, any, any of those that have formed these false religions, and they often will declare themselves a prophet, and their followers just accept it because, hey, they're, they're, they have flattering and smooth words that sound great. But where is the proof? For one thing, Muhammad never performed any miracles. And one thing that we see throughout the scriptures is that not only did Jesus perform miracles, but so did his disciples, his apostles performed miracles to be able to confirm that they were from God. That was really the purpose of miracles. Well, Muhammad never performed miracles, and there was never any prophecy that he gave that could be confirmed before he died. Now, Muslims will claim that Muhammad did prophesy battle victories, and they give you know several examples. Here are just a couple. For instance, they claim that Muhammad prophesied that the Romans would be victorious over the Persians, and you can see that in Surah 30, verses 1 through 4. They claim that he predicted the Muslim victory in Mecca in Surah 48, verse 27. The problem is, if you really look at these things, and of course the entire Quran was really written after his death, he didn't predict these, and there are, is no documentation that show that he did before they actually occurred. All of this was written after he died. And so you can't really claim it's a prophecy. If you say that after the battles were fought, this would happen. So, Jeff, it'd be kind of like here in the United States, we would talk about, you know, World War II or, or you know, the uh, Civil War. And, you know, the North would be victorious over the South. And we wrote this now, right? It would be kind of hard to say, well, you know, so-and-so back in the 1700s predicted that this would happen. Uh, wh where is the proof, right, if, if you're just simply claiming it after the fact? Exactly. And, you know, honestly, a lot of people attack the Bible, uh, Bible prophecies from the same perspective. In terms of some of the, you know, Old Testament prophecies, they would say, well, that was written after the fact. But, you know, if you look at the available evidence, uh, that's not true. Yeah, and that's all we really ask everyone to do is is just look at the evidence, you know, look at what the Bible says, but also, you know, research some of the scholars and the, the scholarly work that was done to get what we have today, the Bible, and for those that look at the Quran, look at the evidence that would tell you how that came to be. Jeff, one final thought for me, and then I'll, I'll turn it over to you, and that is, you know, I was thinking about, you know, Martin Luther and uh, John Calvin, and you might remember in the series that we just completed on Calvinism, you know, the adherence to what John Calvin believed are the ones that were actually responsible for putting together the five tenets of Calvinism. That's not something John Calvin did. Now, he did teach it, but he didn't put together those five points of Calvinism. They did. Martin Luther, uh, remember, he made it very clear that, A, he did not want his name to be associated with a religion, yet we have the Lutheran religion today against his own will. He was completely against mechanical instruments of music being used in worship, but yet Lutherans and many other denominations use musical instruments. So it just goes to show you that, you know, oftentimes religions are formed, beliefs are stated after those who they claim, you know, the name for or that, you know, set all of this up were, were long dead. <laughs> so anyhow... Uh, good point. 
So I think at this point, as you said, we're going to kind of wrap up uh, part one. would certainly encourage our listeners to tune in, quote unquote, next time. And we will continue our discussion of these base four basic assertions. Of course, the ones we've you know looked at so far about the Bible being corrupted, you know, not true. You know, Muhammad being a true prophet, not true. Uh, we'll get into their assertions about Jesus not being deity. We'll talk about their assertions that Islam is a religion of peace. We'll examine in a little bit more closely what the Bible says about Jesus's um, position on violence and warnings about following the doctrines of men and begin to wrap up with what our attitude should be toward Muslims. Uh, and then I think next time, Brian, we'll walk through some uh, questions before we wrap stuff up. Yep, we definitely want to do that. Look at some questions that our visitors to BibleQuestions.org have submitted about this subject. So thank you for tuning in, and we encourage you next time to join us for part two, where we continue this study on Islam. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website at BibleQuestions.org, where you can find over a thousand scripture-filled articles on a wide variety of Bible topics, along with about two dozen free Bible study lessons and other Bible study aids. Plus, you can submit a Bible question to us to get a personal response within a couple of days. Check it all out at BibleQuestions.org.